This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. We're sometimes overwhelmed in this program by how many things are going on in the current events department. And boy, is there a lot going on currently that we can and, and will discuss. Later in the show, I'm not sure whether it'll be in our second or our third segment, we're going to bring back our pal Sean Mitten to talk a bit about the Olympics that just took place over in Sochi. And we're pretty sure that it's not true that in nearby Crimea, what you're seeing over there are part of the closing ceremonies of the Sochi Olympics. But before we talk about all that stuff, let's start this program as we like to do with on this date in history, our date in question today is the 13th of March. It was on March 13th in 1519 that the Spanish conquistador Hernán Cortés lands on the coast of Yucatán. He befriended the local Indians and made plans to conquer the Aztec Empire. It appears that his remarkable success was more a factor of the diseases the Europeans brought with them to Mexico. Evidently, death and destruction from some unintended bioweapons imported to Mexico preceded Cortez, so that by the time he got to Tenochtitlan, most of the people were dead, or so I've read. Also on this date, March 13th in 1842, the English general Henry Shrapnel invented the Shrapnel artillery shell, which was filled with small projectiles. This very nasty invention of Henry Shrapnel has killed countless people ever since. On a happier note, it was on March 13th in 1877 that a Maine teenager named Chester Greenwood patented the earmuff. Now, our source on this didn't say that he invented the earmuff, but that he patented it. There's sometimes quite a big difference between those two things. On March 13th in 1940, the first of seven successful American road film comedies premiered. In this case, The Road to Singapore with Bob Hope, Bing Crosby, and Dorothy L'Amour. Although a bit cheesy by today's standards. In fact, I think they were a bit cheesy by the standards of the day. We would note that Hope and Crosby's road pictures do contain quite a few laughs. Something is no laughing matter took place on March 13th in 1954. That was the Siege of Dien Bien Phu, in which 40,000 Viet Minh soldiers surrounded 15,000 French troops and launched a massive artillery barrage. Military experts, like our own President Dwight Eisenhower, were dumbfounded that the French were stupid enough to build a fortress in a valley and then dare their opponents to attack them, which they did from the high ground, of course, with their artillery, which they bicycled in. Even worse aspect of this military disaster was that it led to the United States getting sucked into this morass in Southeast Asia. Anyway, for us, the most curious... Uh, incident dating to March 13th was what happened on March 13th in 1781. On that evening, the German-born British astronomer William Herschel discovered a planet. This was the first time a planet had been discovered using a telescope, making Uranus, of course, the first planet not known to the ancients. Now, there are two items which uh, would logically segue off this factoid. The first is that we at Radio Parallax had the delightful opportunity to speak to astronomer Neil deGrasse Tyson some years back, wherein he talked about this. 
We hope, dear listener, that you caught the new version of Cosmos, which debuted last Sunday. So far, it seems to have captured the spirit of the original, although I don't think the original had so many damn commercials. But at any rate, let's review what Neil deGrasse Tyson had to say about the discovery of Uranus. Well, no one had discovered a planet before, so uh, this is because we, we had Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn. That's it. And no one had discovered a planet until Herschel discovers a planet. And so how do you name it? What is, you know, what is the tradition? How are we going to do this? And he, being a nice, you know, well-funded astronomer in England, thought he would just do what any, any research scientist does. He wanted to name it after his funder. <laughs> and his funder was King George. Uh-huh. So there was Planet George. There it was. Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, and George. <laughs> and there it stayed for several decades until sort of clearer heads prevailed. But we, if you, you have textbooks that show Planet George in their maps. And I don't know about you, but that's an unsettling concept uh, yeah. to have a Planet George. Um, so people figured out, well, wait a minute, the other planets, they're actually Roman gods, so let's, why don't we make a new rule that they're be named after Roman gods. And so, now, here's a little-known fact, kind of to appease the British, because you don't really, you didn't want to tick off the British, being as powerful as they are in their armies and their navies. The, the tradition in progress up until that point was, if you had moons of a planet, uh-huh. they'd be named after Greek, assorted Greek characters in the life of the Greek counterpart, to the Roman god after whom the planet is named. In other words, you have Jupiter, right? Uh-huh. One of Jupiter's moons is Ganymede. So Ganymede was the manservant of Zeus, and Zeus is the counterpart to Jupiter, the Greek counterpart to Jupiter, who is the Roman god. Okay, so that's how you do that. Well, you get to Uranus. Uranus, Uranus is the lone exception here. The moons of Uranus are named after assorted fictional characters in Shakespearean literature. Yes right out of the pages of British writings. Politics, even in the solar system, even in Maine. That's exactly, you nailed it. There it is. We're looking forward to watching the rest of the Cosmos series as it unfolds with Dr. Tyson as its capable host. The second thing to segue off the discovery of the seventh planet is to correct an error we made a few weeks back on the show. We incorrectly noted the 20th anniversary of, of the discovery of the first set of planets orbiting another star. It turns out that took place in 1992, not 1994. We did note correctly that the number of extrasolar planets was up up near 2,000 now. Although I did make that statement just before NASA announced that the data from the Kepler space probe had revealed another 700 planets orbiting other stars. So my estimate was apparently slightly premature, yet correct. We also want to note that the good people at NASA have contacted the program to say that they would be happy to talk to us about the Kepler mission and the multitude of planets which it has discovered sometime in the weeks to come. We're looking forward to that. We're also looking forward to see what Cosmos is going to do, talking about all those extrasolar planets. When Carl Sagan did the original version back in, I guess it was 1980, we had no knowledge of a single other planet out there. How far we've come. Oh, and Mr. Merlin does want to point out that we have no way of confirming whether Neil deGrasse Tyson got the job hosting the new version of Cosmos because of his appearance on Radio Parallax. But he came off pretty well, so, you know, maybe... 
Our quote of the day comes from Mary McCarthy, who said, In science, all facts, no matter how trivial or banal, enjoy democratic equality. Our quote of the day comes from Billy Crystal, who said recently, Nothing can take the sting off the world's economic problems like watching millionaires present each other golden statues. Our joke of the day comes from the writers for David Letterman, who noted that if Putin invades Ukraine and then passes the written test, he will be promoted to dictator. Our anecdote of the day is as follows. When an astrologer correctly predicted that a lady at the court would die within eight days, Louis XI, a devout believer in astrology, was duly impressed. But he was convinced that too accurate a prophet was dangerous, so he planned to have the man killed. As the astronomer was being restrained, Louis said to him, You claim to understand astrology and to know the fate of others. Any last prediction about your own life? Answered the astrologer, I shall die three days before your majesty. Yes, his life was spared. And no, we can't verify that story, but you know, we're not going to Snopes that one. We're going to let it stand. All right, we have a couple stats of the day. The first is 35.4%, which represents the percentage of people in Mississippi who are obese. If you're keeping score, Mississippi has now overtaken West Virginia as the fattest state in the nation. And stat number two, which I think is probably, for my money, the most astonishing one of the year so far, is that according to the Wall Street Journal, U.S. regional airlines are facing a pilot shortage due to low salaries. Starting pilot salaries at 14 U.S. regional carriers average 22400 a year, with some paying just $15,000. Yes, that's right, minimum wage. Is this the place where you want to see corporate America skimping on expenditures? Think about that one next time you're boarding an aircraft. You know, I'd like my pilot well paid, thank you very much. All right, we've been thinking about adding a good news section to uh, every show, and I think we're going to keep it. Our good news for this week's program is that this winter's Arctic temperatures have had at least one beneficial impact. They've killed about 80% of the ash borer insects that are destroying ash trees in the Midwest, as well as a large percentage of some other pests, including the gypsy moths, the hemlock woolly aldigid, the corn earworm, and the citrus-destroying cottony cushion scale. And at this point, I think we should move into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week this week for diversion. After a dedicated graffiti zone was set up at the Great Wall of China in the hope it would stop visitors from scratching their names on the historic barrier. Said the Chinese media, most of the graffiti on the wall is in English. It was, on the other hand, a bad week last week for gloating with the news that a Florida teen cost her father the $80,000 he won in an age discrimination lawsuit when she gloated about it on Facebook, thus violating the settlement's confidentiality clause. The private school that fired her father, a headmaster, was, quote, officially paying for my vacation in Europe. Dana Snay, age 19, posted on Facebook, adding, Suck it! A court then rescinded the settlement. 
And to our knowledge, Dana Snay is officially now not going on vacation in Europe. And I do want to take a moment to thank Gordon for the email he sent. Well, actually, I think he posted it on Facebook. But either way, what Gordon described as my best laugh of the day was a photo of a bulletin board titled, How Did You Hear About the YMCA? Listed among the possibilities were television, radio, ad in paper, postcard, online, drove by, and other. Some wag went by and checked off other, writing in, village people. Finally, it was an ugly week last week for, well, is it common sense or is it school administration? The story is that a Texas high school student was suspended after he accidentally packed a beer can in his lunch. Chaz Seal said he thought he was packing a soda can and turned the beer into a teacher, but officials sent him to an alternative school for two months. Seal said, I gave it to the teacher thinking I wouldn't get in trouble. And I got in trouble. Mr. McMillan's advice, next time, Chaz, just drink it. All right, from the Only in America file, number one, we have this one. After a Kentucky Baptist convention started giving away free steak dinners and guns to encourage unchurched young rednecks to come in and accept Jesus, one disapproving pastor asks, can you picture Jesus giving away guns? No, sir, we cannot. And from the Only in America file number two, we have this item, which could also be titled, Our Disgrace of Illegal System Strikes Again. Of course, some might argue that this shows the system works. Anyway, the story is that a New Jersey judge refused last week to order a couple sued by their estranged teen daughter to give her $650 a week in expenses to pay for her private high school tuition. Rachel Canning age 18, claims her parents kicked her out of the house and then refused to pay for her Morris Catholic high school education after they demanded she stop seeing her boyfriend. Sean and Elizabeth Canning say Rachel left voluntarily after refusing to follow their house rules concerning curfew and chores. The student and parents met in court last week for the first time in five months, days after Rachel filed a lawsuit for expenses, private school fees, and future college tuition. The family court judge denied the girl's initial request for support, but he will rule on the lawsuit after a second hearing next month. And we mentioned our little error a few weeks back about when planets are first discovered. We know we're not the only ones making mistakes. Apparently, New Scientist magazine had to own up to one of theirs. In their letters to the editor, they noted that the sequencing of the DNA of a three-year-old who died 12,600 years ago in the foothills of the Rockies created a great deal of excitement last month, which might explain the title of a report in Science, which was in its February 14th issue. The title was, Ancient Infant Was Ancestor of Today's Native Americans. Will Howard wrote to ask, what's wrong with his headline? Well, he was three years old. How could he be anybody's ancestor? And looking at this, new scientist had to own up to the fact that it noted in its magazine that it turned out the three-year-old boy was a direct ancestor of most tribes in Central and South America. 
What they meant to say, of course, was that his relatives were the ancestors of the Indian tribes of Central and South America, although the three-year-old himself was not anybody's direct ancestor. And uh, not only does New Scientist and Science Magazine have to own up to errors, so does the prestigious journal Nature. People thought it was too good to be true, but uh, when Haruko Obokata published two papers in Nature last month, claiming to have been able to turn adult cells into stem cells with just a 30-minute dip in acid, well, they've had to retract it in view of the fact that no one's been able to reproduce those results. Well, it's unfortunate this technology uh, is not appearing to pan out, but it is good that science is supposed to be self-correcting, and it appears in this case that um, it has been. And some other science news that may perhaps be less practically oriented, physicists in Germany have determined the mass of an electron to a greater precision than ever. They measure the electron's mass as equivalent to 0.00054857990967 of the proton's atomic mass. So you may want to enter that into your pocket calculator. That so happens our good pal Mr. Wilders is taking a break from commentaries this week. But I would like to quote from an email he sent us, which was... Durst here wanted to tell you about this movie these guys have been filming called Three Still Standing. It features me and Johnny Steele and Larry Bubbles Brown. It's about three comics good enough for the big time, but who for various reasons stayed in the Bay Area and never quite grasped the big, bad, bold brass ring. With cameos by Robin Williams, Dana Carvey, Paula Poundstone, Jeff Bolt, Rob Schneider, and more, you've already seen the filmmakers work on the Discovery Channel during Shark Week. This is their move from shark to snark. Evidently, filmmakers are a few bucks uh, short of being able to finish the thing, so they're going to have a special fundraiser screening at Alfred's Steakhouse in San Francisco, Thursday, March 27th. For more information, you may want to check out 3stillstanding.com slash Alfred's event for more information. And I imagine he's got something on wildurst.com as well. And I bet if you Google three still standing, you'll find something on it. So let's wrap up this segment by taking a quick look over at Ukraine. The Republican right, of course, have been baying like dogs at the moon, claiming that Barack Obama hasn't been tough enough to deter Vladimir Putin's efforts in Ukraine. Writing in Slate.com, Fred Kaplan called these criticisms absurd saying that short of starting a nuclear World War III, how exactly was Obama supposed to be tougher with Putin? The U.S. has little economic or or political leverage over Russia, and since Putin's great fear is that he'll keep losing former Soviet republics to the West, there are no credible consequences that would keep Putin from doing whatever it takes to hang on to Ukraine. Back in 2008, Putin told the ostensibly tougher George W. Bush that Ukraine was Russian territory. At that point, Bush meekly shelved his pledge to invite Ukraine into NATO. By the way, will somebody please take a look back at the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, and then write us to explain why it is an organization that was developed to keep Joseph Stalin from overrunning Eastern Europe still exists? I mean, it's easy to understand the Russian perspective that they're being a bit ganged up on. I was in Riga, Latvia a few years ago, a nation that is now part of NATO. There are NATO planes patrolling the skies to make sure that Russia doesn't invade again. 25 years ago, Latvia was a Soviet socialist republic. I'm not saying this 
justifies Vladimir Putin being a thug, but it is a little-known fact in the West that the Crimea, the part that's uh, experiencing all the trouble right now, was considered part of Russia until 1954, at which point Nikita Khrushchev gave it to Ukraine. To quote from the Week magazine's briefing paper on uh, what's going on over in Crimea, Noted the editors, Crimea has become a flashpoint in the struggle between Kiev and Moscow, with Russian troops seizing control of the southern peninsula bordering on the Black Sea. But exactly why this region, which has a majority ethnic Russian population and is home to Russia's Black Sea fleet, ended up as a part of Ukraine is something of a mystery. The peninsula had been ruled by Russia for centuries when Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev suddenly gifted it to Kiev in 1954. Many Russians think Khrushchev was drunk when he signed the Crimea away, while others think he was trying to make amends for the great Ukrainian famine, which took place under Stalin. Back in the 1930s, when Ukrainian peasants refused to join collective farms, Stalin orchestrated mass executions and the famine that killed upwards of 10 million people. Anyway, there's a lot of skullduggery that took place in this part of the world and unfortunately is still taking place in this part of the world. But uh, if we devoted the whole hour to it, I don't, I don't think we could do it justice. So as we often say in this program, we will continue to follow events as they unfold. We would certainly have to agree with uh, Peter Baker's summary in the New York Times that this showdown in Ukraine has revived a centuries-old debate over the right of self-determination versus the territorial integrity of nation-states. Baker points out that when Kosovo split off from Serbia back in 1999, which, by the way, has soured U.S.-Russian relations for years, the two nations had opposite roles. At that time, Washington supported Kosovo's bid for independence, while Moscow saw it as an infringement of Serbia's sovereignty. Anyway, I don't want to end on that down note. Something else we'll continue to report on in the weeks to come is an upcoming lunar eclipse, which is scheduled for April 15th and for which we observers here in the West Coast of the U.S. will have a ringside seat. But let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Moon River, wider than a mile, I'm crossing you in style. Someday 